Prepare for war. Say no to orders from military-industrial complex, and support for alternative economic pathway provokes desperate attacks. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 3rd of August, would you believe, 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party researcher Richard Barden. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing the uh, outcome of the Osman talks that took place last weekend and the latest marching orders coming down from um, the Anglo-American military industrial complex to their underling. And then we will talk about um, some of the reactions taking place both domestically and globally to the building success of the um, promotion of certain economic alternatives that are being presented. Um, and yeah, that, that's getting our um, putting us on the map and making our work cut out for us as well at the same time. So don't forget to hit the like button, subscribe, share this as widely as you can in order to get the message out and you can also donate by following the link below. Uh, On to our first topic, prepare for war, say no to orders from military industrial complex. So uh, as mentioned, we're referring here to the Osman talks and that's the Australian-US ministerial meetings that take place annually, I think Annually uh, between the uh, defence and foreign ministers or secretaries in the case of the US. And we have an, another one uh, with the UK every year mm. called Auckman, same thing. So. Yeah, and they're usually on exactly the same page. Of course, and that um, the umbrella of that now is really the AUKUS agreement, mm. which is, as we called it in our alert service this week, a war alliance and is putting Australia on the front lines of a planned new war. And what we'll go through now will show very clearly that that's what is being prepared here. Um, so I'm going to just give the bullet points of it and then I'll get you, Richard, since you've read... Um, you had the pleasure of reading the whole uh, communique coming out of these weekend meetings. Um, we can elaborate on some sections of that. But these, what has been agreed between Australia and the United States has essentially, or will essentially embed US intelligence analysts into Australia's spy agencies, will expand our northern military bases to accommodate an even greater US military presence than it does already will give us a role in production of guided missiles for our dangerous allies. Uh, We will be providing additional storage for uh, US weapons in both Victoria and in Queensland. And we'll also be playing host to an expanded rotation of US Army watercraft and Navy spy planes that are on surveillance flights. So in other words, we're committing ourselves even more fully to aggressive um, action against China, um, as Andrew Tillett put it in the AFR, this is all about responding to, quote, China's growing threat to regional stability, which, as we've shown many times on this program, is an outrageous lie. Um, Now, I wanted to also add that 
the US Secretary of Defence while he was here, Lloyd Austin, said that these actions that we just listed would, quote, build combat readiness. So in other words, the marching orders delivered to us by our strongest ally is get ready for war. Yep. Combat ready. Yep. No, that's and that's what it's been about for you know, all this since they started uh I mean, they've been doing it forever, you know, the old yellow peril thing. It's how they keep Australia, kept Australia under the thumb, first the British, then the Americans. Mm. Nothing new here, but um, the, the, the amped up propaganda drive of the last uh, six, six or so years that we've documented mm. um, for that whole time and, and going back uh, several years before that with this uh, uh, Aspie mob, who we'll talk more about in a minute, but um, that we've been... We've been uh, we've been onto these guys the whole time. They've created this propaganda barrage um, in the media. They've got their little pet stenographers, like Mr. Tillett you mentioned, that put these this line out. China's a big threat. You know they're gonna they're they're going to they're getting ready to make war on you. So you need to be ready for war. And now here they are saying it straight out. So mm, mm, exactly. Yeah, you know, we told you so. <laughs> and. Uh, James Curran, also in the AFR, drew this out. He's a historian and strategic policy analyst, and he's now the, what's his position? International at the... editor at AFR. Maybe they're trying to provide a little balance belatedly. To till it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, we can only hope. Um, so Curran uh, drew out this same point. He said, look, Osman has tied Australia more tightly into both American grand strategy and war planning in Asia. He said the permanent American military presence on Australian soil is now at a scale unprecedented since the Second World War and it is accelerating. Yep. Um, You know, we've all seen what they're doing up, you know, at the Tyndall Air Force Base in the Northern Territory, um, the plans to host um, even potentially B-52s and so forth. The the B-52s are definitely coming. The question is whether they whether they will also have uh, nuclear weapons. And the government has basically said, well, we don't want to know. Because yeah, oh, we're respecting right. America's sovereignty, you know, their sovereign yeah. right, supposedly, to bring nukes here and not tell us. Don't ask, uh, don't tell. <laughs> yeah, because that's their policy. And Penny Wong, the foreign minister, says, oh, yeah, well, we, we respect their don't ask, don't tell policy. Strategic ambiguity, they have this all these different names they call it. And it's basically, you guys run the show, we won't ask questions. That's that's what they're doing now, mm. you know. And so, whether they actually bring them here or not, the, the nuclear weapons, our potential adversary, as they like to say, China, the mm-hmm. country we're getting ready to make war on. Mister Austin told you so. Uh, they they have to assume that they're here and respond accordingly, mm. which means if we didn't already have a big bullseye drawn on our back, well, you know, we have had for years. We've been talking about this for. Um, you know, we put out a report, a detailed report a decade ago yes. on this, the preparation Australia prefe- prepares for nuclear war, right? Um, but if we hadn't before, well, we certainly do now, mm. thanks to this stuff. And we can put up the map showing all the basing um, at that mm. time when we produced that report. And today, I mean, it's just zoomed forward, as you said. Yeah. Um, now, just to draw out a few things, um, we might come back to the intelligence side of it, but the the production of guided missiles, that's new, right, that we're, Australia is supposed to be mm. producing. In, on the part of the production line, what would our role be in that regard? 
Yeah, well, this is what they've been um, talking as uh, the the start of you know it started under the previous government. This current Albanese government's escalated it, you know, um, along with the AUKUS thing, and they call it the guided guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise with title capitals. That's its name. Um, so, according to the uh, the Osmin. Uh, joint statement, which I have here in front of me, it says that the principals, that is the, the, the relevant ministers slash secretaries, agreed to deepen cooperation on Australia's guided weapons, they call it Australia's guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, by collaborating on a flexible guided, we- guided weapons production capability in Australia with, uh, with an initial focus on the potential for co-production of guided multiple launch rocket systems. So, uh, long-range artillery or short-range rockets, depending on how you want to uh, look at it, by 2025. Uh, this is key to expanding the combined industrial power, that military-industrial complex, of the alliance mm. and to building Australia's industrial infrastructure and skilled workforce. In other words, all our industrial development policy is now going to be directed towards war material for the Americans, yeah. which yeah. I'll... Uh, uh, including uh, 155 millimeter artillery shells. This is howitzers, um, long-range uh, mobile uh, uh, artillery, uh, torpedoes, uh, and and missiles of various types. Uh, but uh, it's uh, it's all for it's production of missiles for the Americans. We don't have. Any of the any of the weapons systems here yet mm. to use any of these things? We're going to start building the missiles before we're given the transfer the <laughs> technology transfers to, to to actually use them for ourselves. And here's the thing: guess who's complaining about this? None other than the man, probably in terms of the public sphere, most directly responsible for us being in this position, mm. the lead warmonger in Australia for a decade as the head of the Australian Strategic. Policy Institute, this former Defence Department official, uh, Peter Jennings, who we've talked about before, who was part of the cabal that made sure we invaded Iraq alongside mm. the Americans based That's on a gang. lie. Yep, this gang. Uh, he says, uh, this, this, is, this is in this AFR article that we were just talking about. Uh, he warned it, would, it continued the worrying tendency for Australia to outsource its security to the US. Quote, this is about how it how it positions the U.S. in the north of Australia, rather than announcing new Australian Defence Force capability. It's almost like the government has given up on any short-term enhancement of capability, and what we have got is how we get more U.S. forces here on a rotational basis. Mm. End quote. Well, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. Right. When do empires ever make? Their, their colonies and satrapies self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. They loot your resources and they make you dependent on them for defence. Mm-hmm. It's what the British did, you know, and then they left us hanging in World War II. It's why we aligned with the Americans that weren't like the British in those days mm-hmm. under Franklin Roosevelt. And then immediately after the war, the Wall Street crowd took over again and killed the next president that tried to turn things back in Roosevelt's direction and, and it's been all downhill ever since. Mm. Now, another striking thing that I've noticed and no doubt you have reading media reports and hearing the words coming out of the mouths of these American 
and indeed Australian um, officials, the defence and foreign officials, is it, it's it's not Australia this, America that. It's all one and the same. It's mm. it's this merger of the entities in terms, at least, of defence. Yeah. Well, they used to. They've been talking about interoperability yeah. for all these years. Common combat systems, command structures, kind of like NATO with its what they call standardised agreements, and that's in everything from military material to to um, uh, financial and economic structures and yes. all of that sort of stuff. Sure. Um, and then Richard Miles, the current defence minister, he he started talking immediately. He gets into office and says, oh, "I'm taking my lead from Aspie." Yeah. And he starts talking about, oh, we've moved beyond interoperability to interchangeability. Mm. And it's with the Americans in charge. Yeah, absolutely. So much for sovereign capability. No, exactly. So it's become this seamless operation umbrella across Australia, America and, of course, the UK. Yeah, so we are now officially, the ADF is officially an auxiliary force of the Anglo-American Empire. That's all it's intended to be. And, of course, we talked in um, previous shows and you um, did a whole uh, investigation into this of the co-option of Australian resources as part of that. Mm. So, again, it gets into the economic realm um, very fast. Yeah. When they talk about securing critical minerals and supply chains, they're talking about, again, for them, not not for our benefit. Yes, no, that's right. Um, So I wanted to draw out the intelligence side of this now because... um, the embedding of US intelligence analysts into our spy agencies, um, you can describe that a little bit more, how that will work, but they talk about a combined intelligence centre, Australia, being mm. set up, or they call it CICA. Uh, and there was some very interesting reflections on this by ex-senior defence official Mike Scrafton in the press today, uh, which you pointed to in regard to even things that seem subtle, but things such as using the same language mm. um, uh, in our uh, documents and in our approach to defence and so yeah. forth. Yeah, any intelligence assessments. He said, and this was not in the mainstream press, by the way, but in uh, okay. a publication called Pearls and Irritations mm. that we've referred to before, and everybody should go check it out. It's a uh, very good um, source, yes. Yeah, on all of this, they have all of the... Uh, you know, our friend John Lander, um, who we've interviewed. Um, Former diplomat. Yeah, retired, yes, ambassador, retired to China. Um, ambassador to China and to Iran at different times. Um, and other people of that that generation and that quality of leadership that we don't have mm. running the show anymore. I assume there are still some people like that in the, in the public service. In fact, I know that there are at least some, but mm-hmm. they're not in charge. But, yeah, so Pearls and Irritations is where, they, where a lot of these people publish their... Uh, things, including uh, Mike Scrafton. So yeah, he um, you know he talked about again that kind of seamless interchangeability, yeah. Yeah. setting that up within the intelligence establishment. Yeah, he said um, it, it might, as you said, it might seem a subtle point to mm. people who haven't been in that world and understand how just the way things are framed um, yeah. determines the decisions that get made even before you get told the specific information yeah. a lot of times. Yeah, colours everything and you have the, yeah. your lingo and yeah. various terminologies that come into it that carry beyond the words 
that mm. colour the, the decisions that will yeah, be it's, it's, forthcoming. It's like um, what what tempo and key the music's in determines what sure. dance what the dance is going to be, mm, right? Exactly. You, yeah. You you can't dance a, a waltz to an Irish jig. The, in, <laughs> the instructions are in built. Yeah, yeah exactly. And yeah. and he pointed. I wanted to read what he said about the implications of that because he said, "Look, the Americans possess the largest and most capable intelligence capability ever developed, and their ability to gather intelligence on the Asia Pacific is unrivaled." So why does America need this CICA, this Combined Intelligence Centre? The fact is it doesn't, not for intelligence purposes anyway. The proposed CICA is more likely directed at being able to seamlessly command Australian forces and for influencing Australian policy development and ensuring Australia remains a compliant ally and reliable home to US forces preparing for a war. Yep. And again, as Secretary Austin said, combat readiness, building combat readiness. And the other thing that we um, should mention is um, that you noted earlier is that expanding northern military bases, they've already announced the expansion of um, RAF Tyndall Base um, outside of Catherine Mm. um, in the Northern Territory. There's also two more... uh, uh, in uh, I believe one of them's in the in uh, northern uh, WA, um, uh, Curtin, and um, I think the other one's called Sherga, something like that. Um, these are bare bases at the moment; they're just bare runways. Mm, okay. um, they're going to turn those into permanent um, bases with hardened uh, facilities. Mm. Now, bearing in mind this is just the detail that they've elected to release in Tell this us. in this thing, because the actual agreements don't ever get published. They're no, all secret. Okay, sure. You know, we don't get to see that kind of thing in our democracy that <laughs> claims to be so transparent about whatever uh, it's doing, right? And mm-hmm. complains about, including in this Osman communique, about how this is all justified by China's not transparent, mm-hmm. you know, defence build-up, which is actually, you know, it's much more transparent than ours. They've got a stated policy that they stick to they can smash anybody who's stupid enough to attack them. And other than that, they have a long-range missile deterrent. And the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency says this. This is Mm -hmm. not me saying this. Mm. The Office of Naval Intelligence, Paul Keating cited them in that speech that he made um, asking what the threat was supposed to be. Mm. They they don't have a force projection capability, as the Americans call what they do, you know, 800 military bases around the world and 13 (laughs) carrier battle groups or whatever it is. Um, China doesn't have that. They're too busy building 45,000 kilometres of high-speed railway with the iron that we sold them. Yes, that's right. While we did nothing here and now we're going to do nothing here except build weapons for the yes. Americans to get ourselves killed. Hmm. No, so look, um, and if there's nothing else for you to raise from the report, I wanted to talk about um, the... Assange factor in this. This is yeah. a, as we called it, an Achilles heel of this Anglo-Australian relationship. And because I wanted to draw out the fact that Secretary of Defence Austin, while he was here, tweeted, uh, he put out a tweet where he referred to that alliance as the unbreakable alliance. In other words, you know, there's no getting out of this Hotel California <laughs> <laughs> situation. Yep. Um, but it's a it's a relationship in which there's no quid pro quo mm. when it comes to um, things that are high up on our agenda to resolve, namely getting Assange back home, getting him out of prison where he should not be. 
Uh, and so, of course, most viewers would be already aware of the comments made um, in the press conferences that took place after Osman. I'm not sure if it came up, who would know, during the Osman discussions itself. But um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, was asked about it afterwards, and this is what he said to the press. Uh, Mr. Assange was charged with very serious criminal conduct in the United States in connection with his alleged role in one of the largest compromises of classified information in the history of our country. Uh, the actions that uh, he is uh, alleged to have committed risked very serious harm. So, yeah, now, um, there, there was some interesting reflections of that that came out in Parliament uh, yesterday because the um, Greens put up, Senator Nick McKim put up a motion which was carried in the Senate demanding that the Albanese government should use our close relationship with the USA and the UK to free Julian Assange and bring him home. And, you know, obviously this was well-timed um, to coincide with these events of the past week. Um, and I want to play a couple of clips from um, both Nick McKim and Greens uh, Senator David Shoebridge, um, where it's Shoebridge who pointed to the Blinken comments and he said, look, you know, Penny Wong just stood there mute, which is mm. implicit endorsement of what he had to say, despite everything that the Albanese government has claimed they're doing to get some motion on this. So we'll run that clip. What was Julian's crime? Telling the truth. Telling this history tells the truth and the reality about the US-Australia relationship. The real reason Julian Assange is still in jail is because whether it's Prime Minister Albanese or Prime Minister Morrison, Australian leaders are willing to trade a citizen's liberty, their right to speak truth to power, for a close and unquestioning bear hug from a US president. Days ago in Brisbane, US Secretary of State Anthony Blinken launched an extraordinary attack on Julian Assange. He backed in allegations that Julian had not only engaged in serious criminal conduct, but he'd risked harm to US national security. All the while, Australia's Foreign Minister, Senator Wong, stood by mutely, not defending Julian and accepting Blinken's lies. It was almost as though she believed them. The US relationship, we're told, is critically important to both countries, and many hoped this would work in Julian's favour. But the reverse, it seems, is true. We have the US saying to our Prime Minister, buy our nuclear submarines, fighter planes and missiles, host our bases, embed our spiles, don't forget to smile like it's good for you, and by the way, we will jail your people whenever we choose. And what is Prime Minister Albanese saying? Sure, what a deal. So we say to Prime Minister Albanese today, if not now, then when? When will you tell the US that the next purchase of US military equipment is on the line, or AUKUS is at play, if they don't respect our citizens' right to truth, and if they don't end the prosecution so that we can free Julian Assange and bring him home? So, yeah, he ended there, as you would have seen, um, saying, when will Elbow tell them AUKUS is on the line? all these plans are on the line. You know, mm. that's what we should be doing if we're serious, if we're actually fulfilling the commitment that we made to, um, to advocate on behalf of an Australian stuck in prison. And Nick McKim um, m m furthered that point when he spoke. We'll listen to that. What we need 
is for the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister to make it clear to Mr Biden that freedom for Mr Assange is a non-negotiable in this relationship. He needs to stand up for his citizens. I mean, that is the very least that any Australian would expect their Prime Minister to do. Now, make no mistake, the situation Mr Assange finds himself in is not in any way about uh, his actions threatening the US national security. Remember, the US government has freed Chelsea Manning. Rightly so. Rightly so. But what about the Aussie? What about the Australian citizen who published the information, who published it, who didn't leak it? He's festering away in Belmarsh Prison. It's an outrageous, outrageous injustice that we are discussing here today. What the Albanese government needs to do is insist that the US cease its attack on journalism, cease its attack on the truth, free Mr Assange and let's bring him home to his family and his country where he belongs. So, you know, this is important. One of the um, things that's been drawn out of this debate and the broader discussions around it, um, and I think uh, Shoebridge did a good job of pointing to the fact that, you know, Assange is in prison for telling the truth. And he said, when you look at the truth of the history of how he ended up in jail, it reveals the truth about the Australian-US relationship and how one-sided it is and how it's designed to foster more of the wars that Assange, you know, is in prison for revealing the truth of. Uh, Exactly. Absolutely shocking state of affairs. And when you are at a period of history like we are today, the real leadership are simply the people who are prepared to tell the truth. It's a very hard thing Mm. to do. I mean, I'm sure, you know, for all of our politicians and particularly when you're the Prime Minister and you're under the spotlight and you've got this weight of this pre-established Anglo-American alliance weighing down in you, it is a very difficult thing to do. But you have to do it. And it's those truth-tellers that inspire change. I mean, you know, sometimes you think today, where are our Martin Luther Kings, where are our JFKs, our Gandhis? Well, you know, this is what we have today. We have Assange, we have David McBride, who had the guts to break the law knowing he could face, you know, decades in prison for revealing the corruption inside the Australian military. Mm. Um, Another um, crucial figure is Dean Yates. And... um, Dean Yates is the, he was the Reuters bureau chief in Iraq, stationed in Baghdad at the time of the um, quote unquote collateral murder, uh, which was when the, as people have probably seen the now infamous footage which was released by WikiLeaks, it was discovered by Chelsea Manning and it was put, um, made available to WikiLeaks with a lot of other material and it was the key thing that uh, actually probably tipped Julian Assange over the edge to say, I need to release this because Mm. these are war crimes. Of course, the famous footage shows the um, 
American Apache helicopters shooting and killing two Reuters staff, a journalist, uh, sorry, a photographer and his driver. And then, uh, and we'll, we'll show this, I'm not going to show the whole clip, but we'll show a bit of it in a moment because um, when you read uh, Dean Yates, this bureau chief of Reuters, um, you know, he was responsible for these staff at the time and he mm. suffered horrific um, what is described as moral injury and mm. led to um, extensive mental illness, which he's had to fight. And he's written this up in his new book, um, which we wrote about in the um, Australian Alert Service this week. The book's called Line in the Sand, and I highly recommend it. It's an extremely raw account, an honest account of what he went through because mm. he didn't speak up about all of this at first. And, you know, he mm. t- well, tells... Yeah, because at first he, they went and said, you know, they knew that they they obviously everyone knew that this that these people had been killed by yeah. quote unquote friendly fire, mm. but the generals just lied to his face. Yeah, and to, oh well, this you know they were amongst an armed group, and so their acceptable collateral damage basically was the story. Mm. And it's not until this video comes out, um, so that would, the incident happened, I believe, in two thousand and uh, six or seven. Seven, I think. Two thousand and seven, and it was. Yeah. Um, 12th July was, 2007. Yeah, and so it was three years later when Manning, um, or in between times, um, had given the file to Assange, and it was 2010, yeah, 2010 when, they re- when WikiLeaks released published it. it. Mm. And contrary to what Blinken said earlier in that clip you played earlier, Assange did not recklessly release names nope. that no single person has been harmed mm-hmm. from. This is acknowledged again, officially acknowledged by the intelligence services and just lied about by the governments and press. Um, they they went through and they redacted sensitive information and whole mm. files that were that were not released, uh, uh, and about operations all over. They, I mean, he got on the phone to Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary yeah. of State and spent an hour and a half on the phone one day. There's a recording of that mm. that WikiLeaks mm. uh, released parts of. Um, coordinating with the State Department to make sure that they didn't do any of the things that, that Blinken is now up there just asserting that he did and not being contradicted mm. when our government definitely knows the truth or has no excuse not to at any rate. Yeah. So so Dean Yates um, launched, had a book launch, uh, which some people from our office, including Robert Barwick, attended on Saturday here in Melbourne at uh, Trades Hall. Uh, and, yeah, he read out some of the first chapter which of his book which describes the collateral murder on the day, on the ground. So this this was, you know, he, and he's Australian, I should have mentioned, um, Dean Yates. So, you know, here he is now telling the story of what happened hour by hour on the ground that day, just part of his book. Um, and then, of course, later it was another Australian Assange who revealed this. And, you know, so you have the truth coming out, but... Um, you know, really a horrific situation when you read the details of it because not only were the two, the two Reuters staff killed but um, the, one of those Reuters staff didn't die immediately and he was struggling to, he was crawling along the ground trying to get up and you'll see this in the video and a minivan of a father who was driving his two young children to school, like five and seven or something like that, years of age, he pulled over to try to help them. So he gets out of the van and tries to pull the man into the van and then the US Apaches 
say, oh, look, you know, what's going on down here? We need mm. to get these buggers, you know, let's shoot at them. And so they... After acknowledging that there were kids in the van and they yes. didn't care. Yes, and you could see, you'll see in the footage, you can see a child poking his head out of the window. So these two children, who fortunately did survive, um, they had horrific injuries, but they saw their father killed in front of them. Um, and, yeah, so we'll just roll that clip. So, yes, um, you know, this is what Assange is mm. exposing. This is what compelled him, the moral imperative to speak the truth. And, you know, you can't suppress that yep. because if you do forget democracy, forget, you know, any standard, any moral standard of an actual civilization. Yep. And when, and just to point out again, when Albanese and the others get up there and they defend this alliance, 
That's that is what, what they're, defending. they're defending. That's yes. what they're defending. So now we'll tell you in a minute what you can do about it, but we're moving to our second topic. Support for alternative economic pathway provokes desperate attacks. Um, so we're, we're going to um, come to, in a moment, something we discussed the last two weeks, which is um, on this misinformation and disinformation bill but and, and how that's going to... That's aimed, actually, to stop the alternative that we're mm-hmm. campaigning for. But first, let's give you the update because Robbie Barwick and Glenn Isherwood, another Citizens' Party organiser, have just been in Canberra and in Sydney and they met a bunch of politicians in Canberra. Um, they had a brilliant response uh, to our campaign uh, to stop the bank closures. Um, of course, they had some brilliant ammunition, and we'll put this up on the screen. Uh, Glenn pulled together some of the um, key um, interventions that we've made against the NAB lies in a bank shame sheet. <laughs> uh, and politicians were really incensed about this um, because some, well, some MPs we met are in the electorate, represent the electorates where this is happening, mm. holeless bowls, and that includes cities, of course, not just regional areas, but this just points to particularly mm. the most egregious recent lies where NAB, for instance, has continually given the excuse for closing excuse for closing branches as that they're getting fewer customers coming into branches. And yet, as you see there in the um, speech bubble from this NAB executive, Rachel Slade, she said in response to questioning in the parliament, those interactions that don't result in a transaction are actually very challenging to measure and we don't measure them. Uh, mm. So, in other words, their excuse has nothing behind it because, yeah. as we point out here in these five points, they don't measure customers updating a signature, completing paperwork related to power of attorney or a will, applying for a loan, trying to resolve problems from online banking problems, and any other visit with a non that doesn't result in an actual monetary transaction. Yep. So none of that's included. This was what they admitted um, to the house on 12th July. Yep. And even a lot of the ones that actually did have transactions, by the way, would be not not recorded because the staff are told to direct the customers to the ATMs out the front whenever possible yeah. and not to the tellers. So they have so, no idea how many people, how many branch visits are actually happening. They don't care. Mm. Um, so we had, just to give you a little bit of the flavour of it, a really feisty Member of Parliament who gave us some great advice on how to really cut through and, and get some progress on this. We had a National MP who wants to actually hold demonstrations outside the banks. This is They're getting serious here. Um, we had another MP on uh, our proposal for a public people's post office bank who loves the idea and we've met several times and is getting better and more serious about fighting for it. And, you know, we, look, the support across the parliament for a public bank is growing. We, we really have the, the basis to push this forward rapidly. We had a lot of interactions with staffers um, and we also were able to let MPs who are doing a good job taking on the banks, taking on ASIC and so forth, let them know they have our support and that of our mass movement, which they were very happy to hear. Now, just roll the tape of a quick clip that uh, Robbie recorded to give his overview of uh, the events in Canberra. Hi, it's Robert Barwick here reporting from Canberra, where I'm with Glenn Ishwood today, representing the Citizens' Party. We've actually been here all week meeting members of parliament about the 
uh, crisis in bank branch closures across Australia and the solution of having a public bank, a people's bank in post offices. Our meetings have gone very well. People in the building behind me really do understand that this is infuriating their constituents right across Australia. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Um, uh, left to their own devices, they feel powerless um, because they're up against the banks, the power of the banks. And that the power to do something about it is going to come from the people actually telling these politicians, look, you have the authority, just use it. And we're seeing that process operate um, to a degree, a very important degree, in the current inquiry into regional bank closures. The scrutiny from that inquiry has forced them back down by the banks. The bank we were talking about the most here uh, this week was National Australia Bank, because of course it's the most arrogant bank, doesn't give a stuff what the impact it's having on regional Australia. It's, it's shut down 34 banks out there just this year in total defiance of this inquiry. And some of the politicians we talked to have agreed with us it's time to do something about that. So what's this space? You'll see some more news on this front. But this is the issue that's only going to be addressed if we break the power of the banking oligopoly. They use their power, they abuse their market power to drive us down their path of a digital dystopia. That's their future. They want a digital dystopia. Um, we can put the brakes on that by breaking their power, by building public support for a people's bank, which will put the people back in charge of the financial system. So signing off from Canberra, it's been a good week. All right, so now on to ASPE's intervention because um, ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is pushing war, as we already talked about, is also pushing the, and may have even been heavily involved in, you know, um, the idea behind, the Communications Legislation Amendment Combating Misinformation and Disinformation Bill 2023. So this is the bill we've talked about um, that would censor social media, essentially, uh, various posts, social media posts that they decide they don't want getting um, mm. airspace or uh, airtime. Yep, things that aren't supposed to be talked about, but the government's immune. Anything that the government puts out, by definition, can't be wrong, can't be misinformation. <laughs> right. You Where know, have we heard this before? Orwell's world, at least. Um, but ASPE uh, tipped us off a few couple of weeks ago, and you can find the links below to the articles we've written about it. Um, to the fact that they want this misinfo and disinfo bill to particularly target our campaign against the banks mm. because apparently that's being amplified by Chinese bots run by Xi Jinping. Yeah. <laughs> Personally, he sits, in, he sits in front of his... He's got nothing better to do running a country of 1.4 billion people that. than running a bunch of bots on Twitter, yeah. uh, according to these clowns. Um, and they've got absolutely no evidence... Uh, whether these uh, some of these accounts are undoubtedly bots, but who's mm. behind them? Mm -hmm. And they, you know, uh, they want to paint this. Uh, they want to say that this this campaign that we're running it's only having these successes that we've been talking about because of amplification by Chinese uh, Communist Party, mm. as they keep calling them, bots, and therefore that should be that should come under the rubric of this misinformation mm. bill and be censored. So people can't talk about it or find out about it on and social plus, media. And plus, they want to taint that campaign yeah. against the banks 
scare off MPs, right, and make it as if this is a no-go zone. If you go in that direction, yeah, yeah. you're going to get smashed. Yeah, if you criticise the banks, you're an evil commie and you'll be thrown off yeah. social media, basically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, the McCarthyism has, has applied on all the war issues we've discussed now on the economic front because they're completely interchangeable. Um, so we are going to shine a bright light on Aspie mm. if... Aspie, if you thought we already did, and Richard's the one that's done it since 2014. Uh, yeah, uh, myself and a couple of others. We haven't even started, have we? <laughs> we have not yet begun. <laughs> we have not yet begun to fight, and actually as of next week, we're going to have a deep scrutiny of Aspie's role in this whole agenda, this censorship agenda, so stay tuned for that. But I also will remind people, if you haven't made a submission to um, the exposure draft for this misinformation, disinformation bill, they've extended the deadline to the 20th of August. Make another one if you want to, if you've already done so. Who cares? Mm. I mean, let's just bombard these guys. Tell other people if you've already done mm. it, you can get other people to do the same. I mean, this is something that literally everyone's going to be concerned about. Yeah. And, yeah, so as you say, make another supplementary submissions are, you know, they have, you got something else to say. If you think of something else that you didn't think to say before or you've found out something that you didn't know about it before, by all means. Mm, that's right. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's um, a standard part of the process, actually. So go and, for it. And another thing I wanted to say, just on our final point on the show today, um, intersecting international issues, is that part of this tainting of our anti-bank campaign is designed to distance Australia from any real cooperation with China, mm. as this has all been about Aspie's role, you know, the war drive, it's mm. all been about this division because the prospect since China's Belt and Road was put forward, I mean, after the GFC, after the global financial crash in 2008, China started at that point doing studies of what went wrong and how did we come to this. And they then said, look, you know, there's too much money going into speculation and not enough going into the real economy. The Belt and Road was part of that and it was designed to proffer those solutions to the rest of the mm. world. So let's work together on this because we need all need to get out of this insane mm. situation. And the Liberal government of Australia at the time, if people remember, was quite keen on the idea. We signed a strategic, comprehensive strategic partnership mm -hmm. with China in 2015 under the Liberals. And yep. Tony Abbott, right? So this was not a controversial thing, yeah. a controversial opinion to have, now, you know, unless you think that Tony Abbott's a communist or something. Yeah. <laughs> if, he's a, if he's a deep cover agent, he is the deepest he's deep cover well agent covering I have ever seen or heard of. <laughs> um, now, despite the attacks on the Belt and Road and anything associated with it and China itself, um, China pursued it, the BRICS pursued it, so Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa and the you know, other 50 countries that want to join them, um, well, 19 that have officially applied at least, they've pursued it. And the BRICS are holding a summit on the 22nd to the 24th of August in South Africa. Uh, and there's, this has been the subject of enormous um, debate and freakouts coming from um, leading Western countries, again, namely our Anglo-American allies, mm -hmm. um, at the first thing they did was threaten uh, Putin that if he attended in person, he'd be arrested by the International Criminal Court. Yeah, they, they got the court to drum up some uh, indictment for war crimes. That it, it's, you know, whether or not you, whatever you think of Putin, whether or not he's guilty, they don't have the authority to do that. Heads of state um, 
don't come under that. And Russia's not a party to the court anyway, mm. nor is the US. Now, um, Putin will be there virtually. Sergei mm. Lavrov, the um, foreign minister, will be there in person. Makes no difference anyway. Yeah, but, no, no practical difference. Um, it's all symbolic. The US has just sent its acting Deputy Secretary of State, Victoria Nuland, uh, to Africa, starting in South Africa. And there's other figures they're sending all over the joint to bully nations, particularly African nations, against working with the so-called pariah states of China and Russia. Mm. And particularly they've got the leverage against Russia because of the war. So they put immense pressure on African countries. Oh, you know, you're supporting this war if you work with Russia in any mm. way, shape or form. And one of the ways this came down was the at the 27th to 28th July, Russia, Africa, Economic and Humanitarian Forum, which took place in St. Petersburg, there was immense pressure put on African nations not to attend, including threats to cut off funding, etc. So five nations ended up not attending the summit. Some other delegations downgraded from heads of state or government to lower level people. Nonetheless, it was an incredible summit, which we've written up in this week's Australian Alert Service. You can contact us to get a copy of that or to subscribe, get more details on the whole picture. Um, because they talked infrastructure, um, new rail initiatives, uh, new access to uh, ports in the uh, Indian Ocean, to access trade with Africa, a new um, hub for such trade in Africa, perhaps Egypt, somewhere else. They talked nuclear power, floating nuclear power plants, Mm. space cooperation, an incredible array of topics. Uh, And one of the other big subjects was setting up the financial, stable financial arrangements to make that possible Mm. in a world where countries can be cut off at any moment, um, not only from trading in the US dollar, but from their own foreign currency reserves, as Russia has experienced and other Mm. countries like Afghanistan Afghanistan have experienced. Venezuela. Um, So just to quote a couple of the comments that came out of that... um, Dilma Rousseff, former Brazilian president, who's now the head of the BRICS New Development Bank, she talked about the role, a major role, that the NDB would have in the emergence of a multipolar world, and she stressed how we have to remove the imposition of unacceptable conditions that are imposed on nations in order to receive funding. And again, it brings it back to what we've proposed of governments having their own national credit facilities so they're not dependent on international financing. Mm. But she wants the New Development Bank to take a a new multilateral role and, you know, the IMF and uh, World Bank would be shoved to the side because they are the ones that tell you you've got to implement drastic austerity, kill your people in order to get any money from us to be able to pay your debt. Mm. Um, The Eritrean president... Afwerki, he said we need a new financial architecture for the world and he stressed that Russia has a historical, a historic mission to play mm. in this, that establishment. And South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor, she said we must remake our multilateral institutions, referring again to the IMF World Bank. We, we have to remake that whole setup. She said, we have set forward the guiding principles. BRICS is working for the good of the world. This is a new idea. There is no weaponisation involved and that is a reflection of Mm. all of these BRICS ideas and why they're welcoming and this coming summit in August will in some format welcome Mm. more countries to be part of the broader BRICS Plus group because it's about 
um, representation in the World Forum for what is now t dubbed yeah. the global majority, which is the nations representing the majority of the world's population, but they're developing nations, struggling nations. Yep. And just to, um, I mean, uh, uh, the lady you mentioned, um, Naledi Pandor from South Africa, she's correct in terms of implementation. This is a new idea. It hasn't been done. But it's not a new idea. It's what Franklin Roosevelt and, and Harry uh, Dexter White and the other guys intended the World Bank and the IMF to be. Mm. Um, at Bretton Woods, yes. At the Bretton Woods Conference that, that set these things up. Yeah, exactly, during, during World War II. But, of course, as I mentioned earlier, by the time the war was over and the reconstruction was starting to happen, the Wall Street crowd had taken over again in America. and mm. So none of that ever happened. These things became... Um, not as they are now to start with, uh, so, you know, quite as explicitly, but ever since the deregulation and the floating of the US dollar and then everybody, nearly everybody else thereafter from 1971 mm. onwards, they became these overt tools of, of you know, imper global imperialism, basically. And you can read more in the alert. I wrote an article this week about how that impacted Australia directly because mm. when we deregulated our financial system, um, we took away from our central bank any capability to direct the finances of the nation. It's just mm. it became wash your hands of it. And so therefore, the RBA, for instance, has no capacity unless we restore regulations to get down inflation, for instance. They just yeah. they can't do it because we've tied deliberately tied our own hands behind our backs. So this is why the global financial architecture has to be rewritten. One of the other things that will be up for debate at this BRICS summit um, is hopefully the establishment of a working group to create or to look at the, the steps to create a sanction-proof BRICS digital unit of account. And that would be an account to conduct trade between mm. BRICS and other friendly nations that would you know, operate on the sovereignty of those nations outside of the US dollar and would operate payments outside of the SWIFT network, which is completely controlled by that existing Anglo-American dominated mm. financial framework. Um, so again, you can read more about that in the alert service this week. Um, that's something that's being promoted by uh, a friend of ours, Sergei Glaziev, who's a minister at the Eurasian Economic Union, and people may have heard about him and his ideas. He's pushing this very hard to really get the mechanisms uh, into place Hmm. to replace the current financial order. Yeah, and he was, you know, he, he's a former member of the Russian parliament. Um, he, uh, very smart economist, and he's been working on this for 30 years. Hmm. Um, so, well yeah, worth as, looking as into. have we and our oh, yeah, friends yeah. internationally um, that have proposed, you know, that you can't measure the economy in terms of money alone, um, statistics, um, those kind of aggregate measures. We mm. need to, again, focus, as we always talk about on the show, on the physical or the real economy mm. if we want to have a future. Yep. Um, and our National Credit Bank, Public Bank, you know, is a key element in that. So, as I say, contact us to find out more. We can't talk about all the details here because we have, again, run out of time. So, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Louise. And see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.